Brina Garen, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Welcome, witches. This is episode 19 of Hex Positive. I'm your host, Brina Garen, and for the first time, I'm breaking from my planned schedule to address a timely topic. I mean, Trey Dorn does this all the time over on BS Free Witchcraft, and this particular subject just mm, begs to be talked about. Before we get started, just a few things to plug. First, one of my longtime vendors, the Eye of the Cat in Long Beach, California, is set to reopen this month. They've been good enough to carry my books since I was first published. They are really, really nice people. And they have had a time over the past year. There was a fire in their shop. They've had all sorts of trouble rebuilding, and it's great to see them making a comeback. So if you're in the Long Beach area, drop by and visit, or check out their website, eyeofthecat.net. Later this month, I'm going to be part of SASCON, a gathering of secular, atheist, agnostic, skeptical, and scientific witches. This is something really special. There hasn't been anything quite like it before. It's a virtual convention that's taking place on Zoom and on Discord uh, from Friday, August the 13th to Sunday, August 15th, if I have that correct. And you've probably seen posts about it popping up on my social media. I've been invited to be part of their panel on secular, atheist, and agnostic witchcraft, alongside such worthy notables as Alex from Portland Buttonworks, Sedna Wu, and Lee from Do the Magical Thing. I am thrilled to be part of this. It's my first real speaking engagement, and we are going to have a lot of fun. Make sure you check the show notes for all the particulars. Registration is open, and you can find all the information for how to register and the schedule of events on the Facebook event page or by visiting awitchcon.com. So, let's get to it. I've been seeing a lot of posts going around regarding the origins of tarot. Most of the associated discussion is wrapped up in whether tarot originated with the Roma or Romani people, and whether this makes tarot reading a closed practice. Now, divination isn't my forte, I'll be the first to admit it, but I'm used to fielding questions from witches who want a second opinion on their reading, or want to know the best way to bond with their new cards, or want to know whether they can buy a deck that's caught their eye without waiting for someone to gift it to them. You know, the usual fare. But the current assertion that tarot is a closed practice is based on a lot of, how do I put this politely, people not doing their homework, and a fair amount of performative allyship, which, while perhaps put forth with good intentions, is not actually helping we should all definitely be working to decolonize our beliefs about magic and witchcraft, but perpetuating the spread of misinformation, especially that which reinforces ideas based in colonialist rhetoric, is not actually helpful. I'm going to go ahead and be salty for just a second here. 
because it pains me. It pains me to see people on forums and social media alleging to speak with a voice of authority on a given topic when it is painfully obvious that they haven't bothered to look for a source outside of whatever echo chamber they're currently sitting in. There's a whole lot of this out there. A lot of people slapping their opinions onto stock images or videos with catchy tunes attached and putting them out there as fact. This is not a new problem by any stretch of the imagination, but whenever a new iteration of it pops up, I can feel my biscuits preemptively burning. Everything I'm about to say comes from research into academic sources which are freely available and most of them are online. I will include titles at the end of the show. I am not an expert here and I will never claim to be one, but I care enough about the content I'm putting out to do a five-minute Google search that doesn't just focus on supporting my previously held assumptions and to look for scholarly sources and not just whatever Llewellyn is limping to the barn with. And that is the bare minimum that I would expect of anybody else, let alone someone who is claiming to be an authority within the community. I've said it once, and I'll keep saying it until I'm blue in the face. Do your homework. So all that said, let's dive in. We're all pretty familiar with the setup of tarot decks, the ace through ten number cards, the face cards, the four suits, the major and minor arcana. Pretty standard. There's some variation in what the suits, faces, and trump cards are called depending on which version of the cards you're looking at, and there's plenty of variation in the imagery thanks to the many talented artists who have contributed their own versions of the deck to the modern market. But where does all of this come from? The first mentions of tarot decks appears in 15th century Italy as perfectly mundane playing cards for a game called Tarocci Appropriati. Players would draw cards and use the thematic associations of the artwork to write short poems about each other. It was a party game. The cards were also used to play a Trionfi, or Trump-style card game, similar to Bridge. You can still see versions of these games being played with tarot decks in many parts of Europe today. The oldest surviving decks we have examples of are the Visconti Sforza deck, the Sola Busca deck, and the Tarot de Marseille, all of which are really stunning, and I highly recommend checking them out just for the artwork. The cards later became popular as fortune-telling devices in the 1780s, and yes, we do have documentation for this. At this time, standard suit playing cards, hearts, diamonds, clubs, and spades, were already being used for playful divinatory party games that were taken about as seriously as a middle school game of M.A.S.H., the first purported mystical origins of the card imagery was put forth by Antoine Cour de Gebelon in 1781. Now, if you haven't heard of this guy before, you'll want to keep his name in your pocket for later. 
Gebelon was a very well-respected scholar in his day, and his ideas went on to influence many of the figures important to the New Age and witchcraft revival movements. He is considered the intellectual grandfather of modern occultism, and much of what we see in the late 19th century and early 20th century occult scholarship can be traced to his writings. Now, Gebelon subscribed to a belief which was common at the time, which was that there was some homogenous primeval society which was highly advanced, highly enlightened, and highly mystical, with great influence on the ancient and classical civilizations which followed. He also asserted that this society had passed down secret knowledge through language and symbolism which could be unlocked, so to speak, if one could correlate enough information to trace the branches back to their roots. If this sounds familiar, it is similar to the idea advanced by Margaret Murray in her quickly debunked work regarding the supposed survival of a secret witch cult in Western Europe. The idea of a secretly surviving pagan society or primeval goddess cult is something we still see claims for today, but that's another topic for another time. So, Gebelon put forth this theory in the 1781 volume of his Le Monde Primitif, or The Primeval World, that the ancient priests of Egypt had encoded the wisdom and rituals of the Book of Thoth into the images on tarot cards. Keep in mind that at this time, France was obsessed with ancient Egypt and associated pretty much anything mystical or magical with Egyptian lore, kind of the same way that some modern pagan authors sometimes do with Celtic countries. We all know who I'm talking about. The mania brought on by Napoleon's excursion into North Africa was still a little ways off, but the groundwork was already laid. Here's the facepalm. Jebelon knew precisely bupkis about ancient Egyptian language. At the time, it hadn't even been properly translated yet, but that didn't stop him from claiming that the word tarot came from a phrase that roughly translated to royal road of life. He provided absolutely no historical evidence for his claims about this translation or the origins of tarot imagery. He just put them out there, and because he was well-respected and had some royal subscribers, everyone believed it. Which goes to show that you could get away with just about anything if you were a white guy in colonial academia, because nobody bothered to ask inconvenient questions. And, in case you're wondering, no. His claim about the royal road was not substantiated when the language was actually translated later on. In this same volume, there's an essay by Comte de Millet that connects the 21 trump cards plus the fool in the tarot deck to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Put a pin in this, it's going to be important later. Anyway, there was an essay appended to that essay that said, hey, I bet you could use those cards for actual divination, since they've got all these mystical symbols and associations. Fast forward two years later to 1783, and Jean-Baptiste Alliette, better known by his pseudonym Etela, published the first writings on an official system for reading 
tarot cards, and later created a new Egyptian iteration of the deck made specifically for this purpose. And there you have it, the birth of cartomancy with tarot. The use of tarot spreads, the concept of each card having specific meanings, and the idea of these meanings changing if the cards are reversed can all be traced directly to this guy. And, just like Gebelon, Etela neglected to provide historical sources for his claims, saying only that he'd learned the system from an Italian, a clear throwback to the Italian card games I mentioned earlier. In fact, Etela claimed to have been involved with the tarot longer than Gebelon, so his interpretation was therefore more correct and free of the errors caused by the passage of time and earlier, less enlightened translations. If you think this sounds like two pagans arguing on Tumblr back in the day, you're not wrong. Similar grandiose claims, similar emphasis on longevity and antiquity, similar lack of historical resources to back up their arguments. Yep, nothing new. Now, it should be noted that the suit patterns on European playing cards do have their roots in Mamluk cards, which are Egyptian in origin and likely came to the continent with traders from North Africa. However, these cards were purely for gaming purposes and not divinatory ones, and tarot or trionfi cards are a distinctly different set. And there is no record of any Egyptian mystical text being recorded in a deck of cards. Cartomancy as a practice is, of course, much older than Mamluk or tarot, but that's not what we're discussing here. The existence of the broader practice does not constitute evidence of the existence of all iterations of that practice, you see? Just because there was cartomancy being done in ancient China doesn't mean they were reading tarot. So, thanks to Etela, now we have the official start of divination with tarot cards. Card reading was still a popular party game in the French court, and the popularity of the cards positively exploded when Egyptomania swept the country during the Napoleonic Wars. It's during this time that Marianne Lenormand had her storied career as a cartomancer, and yes, this is where we get the Lenormand deck. She was so popular that after her death, a number of new decks were named after her. And then we come to Elifa Levy. This is spelled Eliphas Levi, for those of you playing the home game. This is another name to add to your notes. This guy is the spiritual successor to Jebelon in a lot of ways. If Jebelon was the grandfather of modern occult thinking, Levi is the papa. First one to say Levi is daddy goes in the pickle jar for a timeout. Now, old Levi, he just goes hog wild with his ideas about tarot. He accepted Jebelon's theory of an Egyptian origin for the cards at face value, going a step further to say that the cards had existed in biblical times. He created his own interpretation of the Tarot de Marseille called the Book of Hermes, which claimed that the cards were a depiction of hermetic and Kabbalistic concepts, and, if properly used, could unlock all of human knowledge. 
According to Levy, an imprisoned person, with no other book than the tarot, if he knew how to use it, could in a few years acquire universal knowledge and would be able to speak on all subjects with unequaled learning and inexhaustible eloquence. Q. Dubious Blinking Levy made a lot of connections to Kabbalah in his writings. Pretty much, if something was mystical, he claimed that it could trace its lineage back to Jewish mysticism somehow. That all mystical knowledge came from Kabbalah or was borrowed from Kabbalah, that was his thing. And no, this man was not Jewish. He was born Alphonse-Louis Constant and actually went to seminary headed for Roman Catholic priesthood before having a crisis of faith and leaving. He subsequently decided to study the transcendent Kabbalah and made that his new purpose, even creating his new scholarly moniker by changing his name to the equivalent version in Hebrew. This guy dove headfirst into an aesthetic and never came up again. So, the beginning of the depictions of Hebrew letters and the Tetragrammaton in tarot cards can be put down to this guy right here. And, yeah, that's cultural appropriation. The Tetragrammaton isn't supposed to be put on just anything. It is a sacred symbol. And the Hebrew letters we see on certain cards in the Rider-Waite-Smith deck don't actually have anything to do with tarot at all all. This was a bunch of Western white guys making associations where none existed. This was hippy-dippy bullshit before hippies were ever a thing. We get a fair amount of modern occult ideas from Levy's work, particularly his best-known book, A History of Magic, which was later translated by A.E. Waite. We'll get to him in a minute. Perhaps most famously, it was Levy who first introduced the idea of the upside-down pentagram as a symbol of evil and a depiction of a goat's head with horns. This would later be perpetuated by the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, Aleister Crowley, Anton LaVey, and an entire generation of Wiccans caught up in the Satanic Panic. Around this same time, Jean-Baptiste Pitois wrote about tarot in his own history of magic, reinforcing Jebelon and Lévy's claims, leading to an 1888 article by Eli Starr dubbing the Trumps and Suits the Major and Minor Arcana, respectively. So now we're starting to see the academic sources piling up, all tracking back to these first unsubstantiated French writings on tarot from the 1780s. And, of course, these will be cited ad nauseum later on, despite their dubious claims and lack of proper sourcing. It's a big academic circle jerk. This right here, this is why citing your sources is important, because you never know who's going to pick up your work and run with it. And if there's one thing the internet has taught us, it's how quickly and easily oft-repeated claims can be mistaken for facts. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. This episode is brought to you in part by Global Grey eBooks. Research is an important part of any witch's journey, but sometimes it's hard to find readily available information or classical sources. 
And who has the time to wade through stacks of dusty tomes these days? Fortunately for all of us, there's Global Gray eBooks, a free online archive of public domain literature. Curated by a single tireless archivist, this site offers so much more than your average eBook repository. The archive is curated into categories, fully searchable by topic, title, author, and keyword. And there are things here you've only ever heard about before. You can wade through the archive at your leisure, or for a small donation, you can download entire collections in one go. The books come in PDF, EPUB, and Kindle formats, and make excellent additions to a well-rounded digital grimoire. I highly recommend checking out the Occult Collection, as well as Mysteries and Secret Societies for lots of interesting and unusual works. You can check out the full archive at globalgrayebooks.com. Remember, this site is all the work of one person, and it runs on donations, so make sure you drop a few dollars in the tip jar or purchase a collection to help keep the content coming. I know my witches are going to want to check out titles like The Black Pullet and Culpepper's Complete Herbal and English Physician, but you can also find copies of foundational texts that help shape witchcraft as we know it today, such as the Gardnerian Book of Shadows, Leland's Aradia, Levi's History of Magic, and so many more. I've used this site dozens of times to find classical sources for my own research, both for personal projects and for this show, and I can't endorse it enough. Whether you're interested in the history of witchcraft or just looking to expand your library, visit Global Gray eBooks at www.globalgrayebooks.com. That's gray with an E for the best collection of free public domain eBooks a witch could want. This episode is brought to you in part by Crowsbone. Crowsbone is a family-owned business with 20 years of experience in the study and practice of magic. Their selection combines carefully curated wholesale goods, unique second-hand finds, and handcrafted items from their home base. Peruse their excellent selection of books, home decor, spell components, and so much more. Make sure you check out their seasonal subscription packages and mystery boxes, as well as their range of personalized services and readings. While you're there, check out their Working Community Survey, featuring a variety of voices from the witchcraft community and their library of free printables. You can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at The Crowsbone or on Tumblr at Crowsbone for regular updates and sales. And now is the perfect time to do it because the good people at Crowsbone are offering my listeners a 15% discount on their products and services. Just use the code HEXPOSITIVE at checkout. This offer excludes subscriptions. Refresh your witchcraft supplies and help support small business while you're at it. Visit crowsbone.com and remember to use code HEXPOSITIVE at checkout for 15% off your order. Crowsbone, to thine own self be true. This episode is brought to you by Portland Buttonworks. Do you like buttons? Of course you do. Have you ever had a great idea for one, but just been like, darn it, if only I had the resources and equipment? Well, fret no more. Portland Buttonworks is just what you need. Portland Buttonworks creates custom pinback buttons in four different sizes, plus magnets, hand mirrors, and bottle openers. Download their templates and create your own designs, or use their Design-O-Matic for quick formatting. You can order just a few custom items for yourself or as gifts, or order in bulk for merch, table sales, or your own shop. And they are 
quick. The turnaround time for properly formatted submissions is one to three business days for most orders under 1,000 pieces. That is lightning fast. I've been getting buttons from Portland Button Works for years, and their quality is always top of the line. Ever wonder where the hex positive buttons came from? Well, now you know. And once you're done making your buttons, make sure you visit the PBW Witch Shop for a thoughtfully curated selection of witchcraft, magic, and occult-related zines. They've got books, buttons, tarot cards, and more. The collection has a refreshing emphasis on magic that relates to traditional and folkloric witchcraft, chaos magic, secular witchcraft, magical plants and herbs, queer witchcraft, politics and social justice witchcraft, and other non-Wiccan magic. There's a good chance they have exactly what you're looking for. Visit the main Buttonworks at portlandbuttonworks.com and check out the Witch Shop and Zine Distro at pbwwitchshop.com. Help support small business and get your buttons from Portland Buttonworks. Fighting fascism one button at a time since 2012. Since we're all heartily fed up with Amazon right about now, I've decided to open a small online witch shop on my WordPress. You can pick up copies of Grove Daughter Witchery, The Sisters Grimoire, and Pestlework, or shop for witchy goodies like banishing powder, witch web kits, and witchy buttons. You might even get a special surprise or two with your order. Go to brainagarin.wordpress.com shop to place your order today. And now, back to the show. So now we're up to the late 1800s. The occult tarot started becoming popular in France, and this is where we first see tarot reading start to become popular in England and America. In 1886, Arthur Edward Waite, told you we'd come back to him, published The Mysteries of Magic, which was basically a selection of Levy's works that Waite translated into English. According to his biographer, Waite was one of the first, if not the first, to attempt to study the history of Western occultism as a spiritual tradition in and of itself, rather than aspects of proto-science or extant religious pathology. Two years later, in 1888, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was established, of which Arthur Edward Waite was a member, and it was their influence in occult circles that would go on to cement tarot as part of the modern occultist toolkit. Now, two of the founding members, Samuel Liddell Mathers and William Wynne Westcott, which is a lovely name, were already firmly interested in tarot and had published pieces on it before the order began. So it's no surprise that their description and interpretation of the occult tarot features in the cipher manuscripts which were basically the founding documents of the group. Mathers and Westcott also went on to make several more changes to the deck, including making the Fool the first in order in the Major Arcana, attributing more Hebrew letter correspondences and Kabbalistic associations with certain cards, assigning planetary associations to the Major Arcana, and renaming the suits of batons and coins to wands and pentacles. The Order never released its own deck for public use, and in fact encouraged members to make their own decks using the designs created by Mathers. 
And yes, this is likely where we get the roots of the idea that you have to be gifted your first deck. However, some of the changes and correspondences assigned to the tarot by the Golden Dawn would later appear in the Rider-Waite-Smith deck and the Thoth deck, which are both still in use today. The Rider-Waite-Smith deck, designed as you might have guessed by Arthur Edward Waite, came out in 1909 and was followed by Waite's Key to the Tarot in 1910. Waite preserved most of the changes made by the Golden Dawn in his deck, so we do see the Hebrew letters and the Tetragrammaton used in his iteration of the cards. This is the deck that most witches will be told to start with. It's still considered a standard in tarot, and you'll see it in plenty of occult shops that carry cards. I hesitate to recommend it, knowing what I now know about the amount of appropriation from Kabbalah that exists in the artwork. It's pretty egregious. The Thoth Tarot, which was Crowley's baby, was released in 1944 as part of his Book of Thoth. The deck wasn't released in its entirety until the 1960s, only color plates appear in the 1944 book. Crowley also used the Golden Dawn designs, but with much different artwork. He also renamed some of the major arcana, swapped some of the numbering, and changed the suit of coins or pentacles to discs. These changes are largely unique to this particular deck. Oh, and fun fact, Waite and Crowley absolutely hated each other. Both of them were involved with the Golden Dawn at certain points, and both left the Order to form orders of their own. They literally went, forget your order, I'm going to make my own secret society. I'm going to go build my own theme park with blackjack and hookers. Popping ahead to the 1960s, an actress and writer by the name of Eden Gray made extensive use of the Rider-Waite-Smith deck in several of her books, which were subsequently adopted by the hippie counterculture as the standard manuals for cardamancy with tarot. You know what was also starting to gain a foothold in the 60s? Yep, the modern witchcraft movement. In 1970, Gray published A Complete Guide to the Tarot, and the modern popularity boom of tarot reading began. And as we can clearly see, it's never really gone away. So where are the Romani in all this? You remember that guy, Jebelan, that we started with? In his essays, he implied a connection between tarot and the Romani due to that supposedly shared Egyptian origin, which is the basis for that word that we do not use for nomadic people because it is a slur. According to Jebelin, it was the Romani who had originally brought the tarot to Europe. Did he have a source for this? No, he did not. His assertions were later picked up by other French authors like Boiteau d'Ambly and Jean-Alexandre Vaillant somewhere around the 1850s, and the idea became fixed in the popular consciousness. Now, tarot decks were indeed used by Romani people to tell fortunes, beginning around the same time that cartomancy with tarot became popular. Cardamancy with common playing cards was certainly in use before this, as I mentioned before, and it's entirely probable that the Romani had used mundane cards before picking up the tarot. 
since most people wouldn't hire them for quote-unquote honest work, you know, because they're racist dicks, they had to make money by busking or doing odd jobs and trading on whatever skills they had, including knowledge of the tarot cards and their supposedly mystical reputation. As tarot decks faded from popular mundane use and became the subject of more and more occult scholarship, the Romani carried on using them. Eventually, this was the strongest and only association that remained in people's minds. And if you need an idea of how quickly this can happen, just look at how long it's been since Rick Astley's biggest hit has been associated with anything other than internet memes. This supposition was only strengthened by the writings of modern occultists such as Lévy, who reinforced Jebelon's claim of an Egyptian origin and introduced the idea of hermetic Kabbalistic associations, both ideas rooted in colonial exoticizing of other cultures, Mathers and Westcott from the Golden Dawn, and our old friend Raymond Buckland. All of these ideas filtered down through modern pagan and New Age practices as part of the literature on the modern witchcraft movement. But so few authors bothered to look into the mundane history of the cards that their proper historical origins were often overlooked in favor of more mystical explanations. Yes, including their supposed genesis among the Romani, and all the superstitions pertaining thereto, i.e. your first deck must be a gift, and so on. So what does this mean for modern tarot users? It means if you like a deck, you don't have to wait for someone to gift it to you. It means you're not stealing anything if you read tarot, even if you ask to be paid for your readings. It means bad information disseminates faster and more easily than good information, largely because it's shorter and memeable and easier to fit into performative agendas. And it means we still need to do our homework when it comes to the history of witchcraft and occult practices. Does this mean that tarot cards aren't inherently mystical? Yes. But then again, no man-made object is inherently mystical. Plenty of things can have mystical meaning attached to them, but we have to keep in mind that these mystical meanings and associations are created by people. At some point in history, somebody sat down and said, this sounds like a good idea. Maybe they had divine inspiration. Maybe they made a connection to something ancient. Or maybe they were just talking out of their ass. It's not always easy to say. What we need to keep in mind is that people like to look for mystical and exotic explanations even where they don't exist. Sometimes, especially where they don't exist. And that scholarly speculation on the supposed origins of a practice do not constitute historical fact unless they're supported by historical sources, no matter how often the claims are repeated. See also Bede and Eostra. There is certainly cultural appropriation involved with tarot, namely in the imagery and the associations put forth by early scholars and in the inclusion of Hebrew letters and symbols later on. But tarot itself is and always has been a deck of playing cards, 
and cartomancy with tarot is no more closed to anyone's use than divination with the bicycle decks you can get at any dollar store. It did not originate with the Romani people, and it's never been exclusive to one group or one tradition. If you want to stay away from the appropriative aspects, which is laudable, just don't get a deck that includes that imagery. And don't buy into or repeat the claims about mystical Egyptian, Romani, or Kabbalistic origins. Now, none of this is to say that tarot reading isn't a valid practice, or that card readers are fakes. Reading tarot has been a part of modern witchcraft since the 1960s, and it's only becoming more popular as the years go by. I own several decks that I have found to be very helpful, including one with lovely artwork inspired by the Visconti Sforza deck, and another one that drags me to hell and back every time I read with it. There is no reason that tarot can't be part of your practice if you find it interesting. What's important in this situation is to understand that pop culture and sourceless speculation can and do influence how we view things. This is why I put so much emphasis on research and critical thinking while you're building your practice. There are a lot of claims that get passed around the witchcraft community that seem perfectly legitimate at first blush. But if you dig just a little past the surface, the argument falls apart. And while it is important to make sure that we're decolonizing our thinking and our practices whenever possible, and uplifting marginalized voices and communities, it is just as important to make sure that we're not accidentally perpetuating harmful stereotypes as we do so. I definitely encourage further reading on this topic. There is a lot of minutiae that I didn't go into today. But if that's the sort of thing that you're into, definitely check it out. I started with the Wikipedia articles on tarot and tarot reading just to get a basic framework for my research. And from there, I went and found a translation of Jebelon's Le Monde Primitif and Lévy's History of Magic. I also waded through the Pictorial Guide to the Tarot by A.E. Waite and about a page or so of Crowley because that's all I can stand from that guy. Check the archives of Project Gutenberg and Global Grey eBooks if you'd like to do some research of your own. So, that does it for this month's episode. This was a fun journey to go on. You know me, I never miss a chance to go headfirst into a history book. My buddy Tori over at Toil and Trouble does not call me the witch historian for nothing. I may have to deviate from the schedule more often when rant-inducing topics like this one crop up. Hopefully you found this interesting and informative. And at the very least, the next time somebody comes at you with hippy-dippy tarot-related bullshit, now you have a counter-argument. Thanks again for listening. Remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Visit my Patreon to find out how you can help support the show. Go and visit our lovely, lovely sponsors. And make sure you show some love to all the other amazing shows on the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Until next time, I'm Brina Garen, reminding you to stay safe, keep wearing your mask, get vaccinated if you can, and always make sure you do your homework. Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. 
Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. For all the latest updates, follow at hex underscore podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me at at Brina Guerin on Twitter and Instagram. For more information on my books, you can check out my WordPress and my Amazon author page. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hacks.